Thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you. Uh, somehow or another, I feel like the sound got turned up since the first session. That's, uh, I seem louder. For, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, good morning. That was pathetic. Have you forgotten what the Bible says? This is the morning the Lord has made. You shall rejoice in it. That's not an option. It's a commandment. So let's try it again. Come on. The sun came out. The rain stopped. Hello. So, Good morning. See, you are better with a little rehearsal. That's all it took. Well, obviously, I'm Dr. Grady McMurtry. I just want to remind you, if you were not here with me, we were here eight years ago, and I know some of you weren't even here at that time, but I used to be an evolutionist. I used to believe in evolution. I used to teach it. I earned my science degrees as an evolutionist, and I taught it from the seventh grade to the university level. But during all that time, I was never taught that there was a perfectly valid scientific alternative to the various theories of evolution. But as any good scientist should do, in a search for truth, at the age of 27, I became a Christian. But of course, when I became a Christian, that just made me a saved evolutionist. Hello? Come on, folks, you can respond. It's okay. You can, you can talk with me. I'm from out of town way out of town. But, well, nonetheless, I like people to be interactive, so please do participate. And, and that just made me a sad evolutionist. So I'm smart enough to know I got a problem. So I spent 16 months looking at science from a totally new perspective, just with a blank piece of paper, not allowing what I've been learning and teaching others to influence me. At the end of 16 months, I came to the conclusion there is no science to support evolution. Evolution is a religion. It is a fairy tale for adults. But it is not science. And so, at the end of 16 months, I became a biblical scientific creationist, which means that today I believe 100% from the Bible and 100% from science that creation is true, occurred approximately 6,000 years ago in six literal 24-hour days. And I've been teaching on this subject for the last 47 years. I hope to get it right. Hello? Well, you know, doctors, you know, we, we, it's called a practice because you never get it. Well, anyway, you guys got to put that one together for yourself. Uh, but what I wanted to do this morning is we, we're going to do a different session every time I'm with you. Now, this morning we took a look at how you could prove from the Bible and from history that God is alive, actively working throughout human history. So I did that in the first session. This time, we're going to take a look at the eternal, infinite value of human life. Tonight, The Waters Cleaved is a presentation where we take a look at Noah's flood, and we show you the Bible is absolutely accurate about the details of a worldwide flood occurring approximately 6,000 years ago, or well, I shouldn't say 4,500 years ago, and you will see the actual evidence to prove it. So you won't have to believe me. You'll actually see the evidence that the Bible is telling you the truth. Now, tomorrow night, we are going to talk about simple, easy-to-understand scientific reasons to know that the Earth, the solar system, the galaxy, the universe are only 6,000 years old. And these are the simple ones. I'm not going to talk about the ivory tower stuff. Hello? Come on. And everybody said? Well, okay, the ones up here did. How about you guys back there? Oh, okay. Um, now, Tuesday night. Tuesday night I'm going to talk about the road to man. What that is is that's a presentation showing there's absolutely no truth whatsoever that humans evolved from apes. Now, I'm going to tell you that you want to be here Tuesday night because I can make dry bones fun. Hello? I'm, I'm serious. I guarantee you, if you come here Tuesday to, to listen to this presentation, 
you'll learn a lot, and at the end, it is so much fun, and I'm serious, you will not have any more fun than the end of Tuesday night, uh, that you're going to shake my hand, leaving here, and thank me for getting you here on a Tuesday night. Hello? And Wednesday night, we have saved our single biggest presentation. It's about dinosaurs. It's our single biggest. You know, y'all need more caffeine before you come to church, really. Uh, that's why there's a coffee machine out here. Hello? Hello? Now, I'm going to ask if we can turn the temperature back down just a wee bit. That's a Scottish statement. Because it's so warm in here, people are starting to already fan. So I don't know who's in charge of the AC, but maybe just a degree lower would help. Um, but what I want to do this morning is I want to show you the eternal infant value of human life. Now, I mentioned I used to be an evolutionist. Today, I'm a creationist. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the science first. And I'm going to use only science. And then we're going to take a look at the Bible. And we're going to come to the exact same conclusion. However, I want to talk with you for just a moment. By the way, I don't know if you could turn the lights down on the platform, but just help them see the screen a little bit better. Um, this is our website in case anybody would like to write it down. There's lots of free articles there. There's free video materials there. And uh, the bookstores there also, of course. But by turning down the lights only, only on the platform, not the ceiling. <laughs> yes, that's right. Because they may want to be able to read something. They're going to need those lights. But, uh, well, this morning I want you to know you are a miracle. One person. One, per you know, usually when you tell a Christian they're a miracle, I can get an amen from everybody. So I, I'll try this again. Okay, are you are you ready? I said, you are a miracle. Amen. But you're much more of a miracle than you realize. So let me just do a little brief thing here on the screen for you. You see, I want you to turn, if you would, to Psalm 139. I'll also have them up here on the screen for you. But Psalm 139, that is a, a psalm that's very near and dear to anybody that's in the pro-life movement. And I realize that many of you are familiar with these scriptures, but maybe, just maybe, there's a couple of things we might find there that you hadn't noticed before. Did you ever notice how you can go through a scripture that you've even memorized and still learn something new? Hello? Am I the only one? Well, let's take a little look. We're going to start with verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a scientist. I can weave burlap. Hello? Okay, well, you know what burlap is, right? That's just coarse stuff, right? I can weave burlap. However, the Bible goes on to say this. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Verse 15 says... My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Now, first of all, it is absolutely true that you were created in secret. Ladies, would you agree with me? No woman knows the exact time of conception. Oh, come on. You'll, you'll find out about it within a couple of weeks or so, but, but you don't actually know the time of conception. Is that correct? So we really are made in secret. That's an accurate statement. But then it says wrought. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing. I, I like this translation, but, but tell me something, please. When you hear this word wrought, if I were to say wrought and then another word following it, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Wrought? 
iron. Isn't that what we always think of? I mean, wrought iron? Pastor mentioned, I have made 58 trips to Russia since the early 90s. I go two, three times a year except for COVID. <clears throat> anyway, um, I'm going to tell you, the artisans in Russia, particularly before the revolution, did things with the wrought iron you can't even imagine. They were absolutely magnificent works of art. But you'll also got to admit that wrought iron is simply bent iron, right? I mean, it's simple. But they did magnificent things with it. And uh, here's the thing. That word wrought, translated from the Hebrew, actually means embroidered. Embroidered. That's the Hebrew so when you were made in secret, God embroidered you in your mother's womb. Now, I mentioned I can weave burlap. That's coarse cloth, correct? But I cannot do embroidery. Would you agree with me? Embroidery is fine hand craftsmanship. Is that correct? And God embroidered you. And it says in this particular version, in the depths of the earth, some translations say clay, but it is a direct reference to a woman's womb. After all, he is the potter and we are the clay. Is that correct? And so it says that God embroidered you in secret in your mother's womb. Now, I find this very interesting. No translation is perfect. And every language has its good points and its bad points. For instance, the Russians will never catch up with us technologically. Their language wouldn't allow it. We have a great technical language in English, but at the same token, you may think that English has great literature. We tend to think of Shakespeare and others and so forth, but we don't hold a candle to the literature that can be written in the Russian language. It's a far better literary language than ours. There, there are authors in Russian that aren't even translated because you can't do it in English. So every language has its good points and its bad points. But I find it interesting that in this one verse, the English translation kind of hides the meaning, doesn't it? But the Russian is translated exactly correct from the Hebrew. But there's one more verse I want to point out to you. Verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Now, that verse is kind of interesting. Notice it says uh, unformed substance in this translation. I don't know about you, but I hate the word fetus. How about you? Come on, folks. I think the word fetus demeans human life. It's a baby. Hello? But, but, in Hebrew, unformed substance is actually the word for embryo. Embryo. Now, the fact of the matter is, a human baby is medically a human embryo. It is a perfectly correct medical term. And it will produce nothing but a human. And again, I would stress, isn't it interesting that in these few verses, the Russian Bible is vastly superior to the English and translated correctly from Hebrew. But let me go a little bit further with that. I want you to think about the odds of winning something. Now, I do want to say this. I do not condone gambling. Everybody hear that? Okay? I do not condone gambling. However, I'd like you to think about the odds of something happening. Now, would you agree with me, if the odds of something happening is one out of one, it's going to happen. Come on, folks, one out of one. That's an absolute 100% certainty, correct? But if I take a coin out of my pocket, flip it up in the air, and catch it, the odds, we say, is 
heads or tails, it's one out of two. Not quite correct, but it's close. Um, But one out of two. Now, I'd like you to just be honest with me and then be honest with yourself. Please tell me, if the odds of winning something were only one out of two, that you, you know, win one out of two, would you agree, and I don't condone gambling, but would you agree you might maybe possibly consider taking a chance? Come on, if it's just one out of two, right? But if the odds of winning something were one out of 10,000, that you're going to lose 9,999 times out of 10,000. I don't know about you, but I'm backing up. Hello? Are are you with me? Now, I also go to Brazil. I've made 16 annual mission trips to Brazil. I had to cancel last year because of COVID. Looks like I'll have to cancel again this year. They're in worse condition than Russia right now. But I'd like you to think about something with me for just a moment. What are the odds of winning the Brazilian national lottery? Well, the odds of winning the Brazilian National Lottery is one chance out of 50,060,000. Now, I drove up here from Florida. I live in Orlando, Florida. Um, In Florida, we have a tax on stupidity. I'm serious. We have a tax on stupidity in the state of Florida. Of course, it is called the Florida Lottery. But it's a tax on stupidity. You see, what are the odds of winning the Florida lottery? Now, remember, there's a every week thing. That's 52 weeks a year. But the odds of winning in any given week are 1 in 175 million, which is why we call it a tax on stupidity. Hello? But I'd like you to think about something for just a moment. Now, I'm going to share a quote from Sir Fred Hoyle. Sir Fred Hoyle was a world-class astronomer. Originally, he was an evolutionist, but he was a world-class astronomer, and astronomers are used to working in really big numbers. Would you agree? You know, billions and billions of stars and billions and billions of light years and all that sort of thing, and they're used to working in really big numbers. And he took a look at the biological possibility of evolution occurring even once. He said... That a living organism emerged by chance from prebiotic soup is about as likely that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. Now, first of all, you have to assume that the parts for a 747 are in the junkyard. So the question becomes, where did the parts come from, right? But assuming, now, on my mission work, I occasionally ride on 747s, not often, but I do. They're made out of one million pieces parts. And he said the odds of evolution being true on Earth even once was the same as a tornado sweeping through a junkyard, assembling a 747 ready to fly. But you've got to assume the parts are there to begin with, right? Well, apparently some of you need a little visual. Does this help? Hello? Now, I'd like you to do something. Uh, This is really for your benefit, not for mine, but I'd like to ask you to do something. And then tomorrow, I want you to share with your friends, your family, your colleagues, your schoolmates, wherever you are, uh, what I'm about to share with you. Now, what you need is a little piece of paper. You can do this on the back of a business card if you write really small. But if you don't have a sheet of paper, maybe somebody next to you would tear one in half and give you a sheet of paper. But, But get out a sheet of paper, a pen, a pencil if you can, and I want you to write what I'm about to share with you down. So what I'm going to do is this. What is the possibility of evolution being true mathematically? Now, 
you don't have to write this down, but I do want to remind you of something just in case you've forgotten from school. So this is just a reminder, okay? So if you write a 10 with a little 2 above the right-hand corner, we call that 10 squared or 10 times 10, correct? But it is equal to the number 100. Or if we write a 10 with a little 3 above the upper right-hand corner, as you see here, that's 10 cubed or 10 times 10 times 10, but it equals the number 1,000. This is called scientific notation. It's just a way of writing big numbers in a short space, right? Now, just as, that was just as a reminder. But now on your sheet of paper, would you please write the number 10? And above the upper right-hand corner, write the number 23. Now, that would be a 1 followed by 23 zeros, correct? That is the number of stars in the known universe. Now, that is not all the stars in the universe. Every time we develop a new piece of astronomy equipment that sees farther, we find more. We've never seen the edge. As far as we know, it doesn't have an edge. But, but nonetheless, the ones we know about at the moment would be a 1 followed by 23 zeros, but there are more. Now, would you please write the number 10 again, but above the upper right-hand corner this time, please write the number 80. Now, that's a 1 followed by 80 zeros. Can you see why you don't take the time to write these things out? Hello? But a 1 followed by 80 zeros, that's the number of atoms in the known universe. Again, it's not all the atoms in the universe, it's just the ones we know about, correct? Now, if you please write the number 10, this time write the number 82. Now, remember, every time you add 1 to the upper right-hand corner, it's 10 times bigger than the number you had before. So 10 to the 82 is 100 times bigger than 10 to the 80. Everybody with me so far? Now, that is the number of electrons. Now, electrons are the most common subatomic particle there is, and that's why I'm using them, but that's a 1 followed by 82 zeros. Uh, just a, another time, if you write the number 10, but this time above the upper right-hand corner, read so 97. Now, that's many times bigger than 82, I can assure you. Uh, but that's the number of subatomic particles in the known universe, not just electrons, but all of them, quarks and everything else. Now, let's take a little look. What is the possibility that by chance a tornado could go through a junkyard and create a Boeing 747 ready to fly, or that the proteins of a single amoeba could arise by chance. Now, an amoeba is a single-celled organism, and, uh, but what's the chance that the proteins in one live single-celled organism could arise by chance? Well, if you'd write the number 10 just one last time, and above the upper right-hand corner, please write 40,000. That's a 1 followed by 40,000 zeros. If you would prefer to write that out longhand, we'll wait. No, good. Um, again, you can see why we do this short version. But a 1 followed by 40,000, what is the chance of evolution being true even once? Well, once the number in the upper right-hand corner exceeds 50 or 100, it simply becomes impossible. It cannot happen. But 50 or 100 in the upper right-hand corner is infinitesimal compared to 40,000. What is the chance that evolution can be true even once? Zero. 
There is absolutely no possibility of it whatsoever. You see, we can disprove evolution mathematically, probability. We can do it from biology. We can do it from geology. It doesn't matter. You name a field, I'll disprove it. You are a miracle. Oh, dear. You see, you forgot your line. Remember, that's supposed to be a big, loud, hearty amen after that statement, okay? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a second try. I said, you are a miracle. That's a little better. You need to get a little more excited about that, though, in my opinion. But you're much more of a miracle than you realize. And that's what I want to share with you now. Um, what is the uh, value of a human life? Well, it's eternal and it is infinite. And as I said, I want to start with science and prove it from science only. And then, then we're going to go to the Bible. And again, we're going to prove exactly the same thing. Now, of course, in order to talk about the eternal, infinite value of a human life, I have to have a human life. So let me see if I can go find one. Tell you what, dear, would you be willing to come up here and help me? Great. You don't have to say a thing. I promise you that. Could you just come on to me? You were so kind. I assure you she had no knowledge of this occurring. <laughs> if you could just, just stand right there, and all you have to do is look, look yes, just turn around, and, and you can just admire them, okay? But again, you don't have to say a word, right? Now, ladies and gentlemen, here I have a lovely human life. Stay right here. I'll be right back, okay? I said, here I have a lovely human life. But the question becomes, how did this human life come into existence? So let's think about this. Let's think about how would an evolutionist look at it? How would a Christian, a creationist, look at it? Well, if you look at this as an evolutionist would, the evolutionist says this human life is just the random chance accumulation of one atom at a time over millions and billions of supposed years for which there is absolutely no proof whatsoever. Did you hear that? Evolutionists do not have one fact that is undeniable that proves the earth and the universe are old. They have five arguments they use to deceive you into believing it's old, but they do not have one single scientific proof. They simply believe that this human life is the random chance accumulation of one atom at a time over millions and billions of supposed years for which there's absolutely no proof. Now, if the evolutionist is correct, and this human life is just the random chance of one accumulation of one atom after another over millions and billions of supposed years, how does the evolutionist value the human life? Well, they do it at the atomic level. And so what does the evolutionist do? They will take all the atoms out of her body, and they will put them in little piles of like kind, and then they will put a little price tent next to each little pile. They will put the fair market value of each little pile. Then they will add them all up, and they come up with the value of a human life. Hello? You know, some of you are staring at me like a cow looking at a new gate. You know how a cow looks in a new gate, right? It goes, where'd that come from? Now, <laughs> let me illustrate this for you. So what do they do? Well, they take all the calcium atoms out of her body, out of her bones and so forth, and they put it in a little pile of calcium atoms. They will take all the iron atoms out of her blood, and they will make a little pile of iron atoms. You start to see how this works now? 
Now, I said that you do not have to say anything. I absolutely meant it. I'm a man of my word here. But I am going to ask if you would just shake your head either yes or no. Have I ever looked inside your mouth? No, I have never looked inside your mouth. Therefore, I do not know how much gold, silver, mercury, or cadmium might be in there. I, I assure you, I hope there isn't any. But nonetheless, if there were any gold, silver, mercury, cadmium in there, it would make you more valuable. Hmm? So what does the evolutionists do? They take, they make a little pile of gold, silver, mercury, cadmium atoms. And then, of course, the human body is two-thirds water. But if you take all the hydrogen, all the oxygen out of the human body, it is 80% water. Now, please tell me, how much is water selling for down at the Walmart? Excuse me? Oh, somebody has to have bought it recently. What was that, dear? $2. You need to find a better Walmart. <laughs> well, okay, so that's um, $2 a gallon. So, okay, so that's 50 cents a quart, uh, right? So... You're worth about $5 in water. So, so what does the evolutionists do? Well, they make all these little piles of atoms, and uh, they put a little price tent next to each one. They put the fair market value of each little pile. And, uh, of course, again, don't forget the water, right? And they add it all up, and they say, well, uh, human life is uh, worth $47.36. Now, would you agree with me, for those of you that have not yet been to the book table, you probably got enough money in your wallets right now to buy two or three people. And think of the advantages of it, too, especially if there's anybody here that's still in school. I mean, think of the advantages. If you didn't get good grades, you could buy a student that gets good grades and have them take your test for you. Come on, folks, you've got to start thinking about the advantages of this process here. Yeah, but, but let's think about this. Yes, it is absolutely true that the human body is made out of untold numbers of atoms. I mean, atoms are the basic building block of all matter, and there are tremendous numbers of atoms in the body. But please tell me, are those atoms just loosely bouncing around against each other on the inside? Come on, folks, when I ask questions, I'm really looking for answers. Are, are those atoms just loosely bouncing around on the inside here? No. As a matter of fact, those atoms are in little tiny packages. Anybody remember the right word for those little tiny packages of atoms? Molecules. See? I got one person that knew the right answer there. Molecules. You see, yes, there's tremendous numbers of atoms here, but they are not loosely just bouncing around on the inside. They're in those little packages called molecules. And when you go home today, I want you to remember this. You can take all the money in the world. Are you listening? All the money in the world and everything in the world that can be converted into money. You can take all the dollars, the euros, the yen, the one, the pesos, the reals, all the money in the world. And you can take everything that can be converted into money. You can take all the oil, gas, uh, natural coal. You can take all the diamonds, topazes, emeralds in the entire world. Are, are you with me here? Yeah, you can take all the gold, silver, platinum, 
everything that is money and everything that can be converted into money. And you can take all the money in the world and you can take it and you can give it to... Yes, you have to put your hand out there. You can give it to all the chemical, all the pharmaceutical companies uh, in the entire world, all the companies that make molecules, manufacture molecules, and you cannot buy all the molecules that exist in one human body. Did you hear that? All the money in the world will not buy all the molecules that exist in only one human body. Now, please tell me, in the English language, what is the only adequate word in English that describes an object which all the money in the world cannot buy? Priceless. I heard that. A couple of people, priceless. Let's say that all together. It's priceless. No, that wasn't good enough. One more time. Come on. It's priceless. All the money in the world will not buy the molecules that exist in one human body. Each and every human body on earth is absolutely priceless. Money cannot replace one of them. Well, with that in mind then, I have just shown you scientifically that every human body has eternal and infinite value and worth. And I would like to thank my uh, volunteer. And uh, by the way, don't forget you're absolutely priceless. Well, I've just used science, but now let's use the Bible. Now, in your Bible, if you'll open up to the book of Ephesians with me. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to look at verse 10. We're only going to read the first part of it, but Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And notice it says there, you know, translation something like this, we are his and then you're going to have workmanship or perhaps craftsmanship. Those are the two most common English translations. For we are his workmanship, we are his craftsmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Is that what basically everybody's got there, Ephesians 2.10? Now, think with me for just a moment. When it says that we are his craftsmanship or workmanship, who's the he? Who's the he? God. That's the he, God, right? Now, the last time I looked, God is like perfect. Hello? Now, please tell me, when a perfect God makes a work or a craft, then it's going to be perfect. Is that right? You don't read this in the English language, but the implied Greek says this, for we are his masterpiece. That's what that word really means. We are his masterpiece. When a perfect God makes a work or a craft, it's going to be perfect. It says in Greek, applied, that we are his masterpiece. Now let's think about, what does that word masterpiece mean? I mean, would you agree with me, the word masterpiece supposedly refers to the single greatest, well, work of art of any truly great artist. Is that correct? And some artists of the past are just so good they make you sick, don't they? Oh, come on, folks. How about Leonardo da Vinci? He created tanks for the military, machines that fly, and he painted the Mona Lisa, considered to be one of the greatest single masterpieces in the world. Is that correct? I've had the privilege of seeing it twice. But, but, 
But he also painted another masterpiece. It's called The Last Supper. Anybody remember the painting The Last Supper? Does anybody here know where it was painted? Because it was not painted on canvas or wood. Where was it painted? No. No, The Last Supper was a decoration on the wall of a cafeteria. The people who owned it thought so little of it that when they wanted to cut a door through the wall, they cut off the feet of Jesus to do it. We wouldn't know what the feet of Jesus looked like in the original painting except one of his students painted a duplicate. And that's the only way we know. Some people are so good they just make you sick, don't they? But what about Michelangelo, who I think you're thinking about? What about Michelangelo? Now, Michelangelo, he painted the frescoes of the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And then he went to the Pope who made him do it and said, but I'm not a painter. And Michelangelo was not a painter. Michelangelo was a sculptor. He left us three great masterpieces. He left us the statue of Moses, the statue of David, and the Pietà. And he painted the frescoes of the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Some guys are so good they just make you sick, don't they? But I'd like you to challenge yourself here this morning. I want you to say to yourself, I am a master artist. Come on. I am a master artist. And now, think with me. If you were a master artist and you were going to paint your masterpiece, what would it take to do it? Well, first of all, it would take the skill of the master. Is that correct? Oh, come on, folks. A novice cannot paint a masterpiece. Only a master can paint a masterpiece, correct? So the number one thing it takes is the skill of the master. Number two, it takes the plan of the master. Would any great artist painting what, your masterpiece, would you start off with a landscape and end up with a portrait? Oh, come on, folks. It's a rhetorical question, right? This isn't going to happen, right? Now, you may not know exactly what you're going to end up with, but you've got a good idea where you're going, right? And think with me. If you were a master artist and you were going to paint your masterpiece, what else? Please tell me, if you're going to paint your masterpiece, would you just take the first canvas that came along? Or would you go through 25, 50, 100 canvases until you found the perfect canvas? Well, if you're going to paint your masterpiece, you're going to want to get a perfect canvas, correct? And then you're going to hand select the colors that go on that canvas. You want colors that complement each other. You don't want colors that conflict with each other, is that right? And once you have actually picked out those colors that complement each other, well, then you're going to put them on the canvas with your own hand, is that correct? How many of you know you can cover up the signature on a great masterpiece, but you still know exactly who painted it. Because of what is called the brush stroke technique. No two master artists put paint on canvas in exactly the same way. And you can cover up the signature, and you still know who painted it. Is that correct? And if you were a master artist and you're painting your masterpiece, you would put the colors on with your own hand. But please tell me, when you were finished, would you add or subtract to a masterpiece? Oh, come on, folks. You would never add or subtract to a masterpiece because it's a masterpiece as it is. Is that correct? 
And once you were finished, you would sign it um, because you want people to know who did it. Is that right? And then, of course, what else would you do? You would find a frame to go around the picture. You want a frame that would complement the picture, not take away from it, correct? But the frame does two things. It does complement the picture, but it also sets the limits of the picture. It says that everything inside the frame is picture, but everything outside is not. Is that correct? And that is exactly what God did with you. God picked a canvas that became you. And he picked the color of your eyes and the color of your skin and the color of your hair. And he put them on the canvas with his own hand. And when he was finished, he said, this is you. And then he signed it, painted by God. He put a frame around you and said, this is you and nobody else. There's approximately 7.4 billion people alive on earth today. No two of them are exactly alike. Each person is an individual masterpiece created by God. And I know you may say, wait, wait a minute, what about identical twins? Well, the truth is that we've all seen two boys, two girls, that at six feet away, we couldn't tell the difference on the outside. Is that correct? But the truth of the matter is, they are not the same on the outside. They have different fingerprints. They have different retina scans. They may appear different on the outside, but they are not identical. And they are most assuredly not identical on the inside either. And you know that statement is true because you know it the instant they open their mouth. Come on, folks. This one's interested in science, but that one in art. This one in history, but this one in sports. Is that correct? They appear similar on the outside, but they're not identical on the outside. And they're most assuredly not identical on the inside. Think with me. You can take one set of blueprints, build two houses next to each other. But if you take measurements, you're going to find out that the walls are not the exact same size. The angles are not the exact same angles. And we both know that you can, well, you can decorate the outside and the inside differently too. Is that correct? And so it's the same blueprint, but it still is not identical houses. And so I want you to think about that. What is, what is this great masterpiece that God created? Well, he painted you as an individual masterpiece created by God. Now, I would like you to think about this for a moment. What is the value of a truly great masterpiece? Now, think with me. If you had all the money in the world, could you buy the Mona Lisa from the French? Oh, come on, folks. If you think you can buy the Mona Lisa from the French, you don't know the French. If you, if you had all the money in the world, could you buy the Sistine Chapel ceiling from the Pope? Not a chance. That was the correct response, by the way. Not a chance. It is simply not for sale at any price. So tell me, then, what's the one word that adequately describes its value? It is priceless. Come on, say it a little louder. It is priceless. And that is exactly what God did. He created you as an individual masterpiece, and he is the only one in the entire world that has something valuable enough to exchange for you, a priceless masterpiece. Now think with me for just a moment. No human being can do it. No human being has all the money in the world, in spite of a couple you think might. Hello, just think about that one. Uh, but, but, 
even all the money in the world will not buy another, cannot replace them. And so each and every human life has infinite eternal value and worth. They are absolutely priceless. But this is why God is the only one in the entire universe with something valuable enough to exchange for human life. Now, I want you to think about this. The world outside of these walls often does not understand Christians when we talk because we have our own nomenclature. And we express it in three different ways. We call it the purchase price or the redemption price or the exchange price. We, we use all three interchangeably. But, but the redemption price, the price you pay to get something out of a pawn shop. And God is the only one with something valuable enough to exchange for you, and that was the life of his own son. Now, I don't know whether you've ever had a problem with self-value, self-worth, or self-esteem, but let me ask you a question. If God thinks you are that valuable, that the only thing he has that's valuable enough to exchange for you was the life of his own son, please tell me, why should you think less of yourself? Hello? Now, the Bible is very specific. You should not think too much of yourself. You're not God. You're never going to be God. But the Bible also says you shouldn't think too little either. Hello? And the only thing that God had valuable enough exchange for you was the life of his own son. And therefore, if that's true, why should you think less of yourself? And I'd like to challenge you. Where you're sitting right now, just take a look at the person sitting on your right or your left. And with a new appreciation said, you are a masterpiece. Come on, turn at them and say, you are a masterpiece. And tell me, what would it be like here in this body of believers if you started looking at each other that way? What if every person in this room, you looked at them and said, oh, you are a masterpiece. You're a priceless masterpiece. And you are a priceless masterpiece. And uh, the gentleman back there in the far corner, you are a priceless masterpiece. The gentleman right here on the end here, you are a priceless masterpiece. If you started doing that, you think you might treat each other a little differently. Excuse me? Yeah, I mean, you may value that person, but have you ever looked at them and said, you are a priceless masterpiece? And what would happen here if you had just one church in Tuscaloosa that looked at the people around them and said, every one of you, you are a priceless masterpiece. You are a priceless masterpiece. You are a priceless masterpiece. I think you could turn the town upside down. How about you? And never think small with God. What if we had churches like that sprinkled across the state of Alabama? Whoa, boy, do I wish that were true. But what if you had churches across the entire state that looked at everybody and said, you are a priceless masterpiece, and you are a priceless masterpiece. I think you'd turn the state upside down. Hello? What if you were simply standing on the curb of the street, and you saw a car drive by with somebody driving you have never seen before, and you may never see again this side of heaven. Are you looking and say, oh, look, there goes a priceless masterpiece. What if you're in the shopping mall someplace, you walk up into somebody and say, did you know you are a priceless masterpiece? And they go, huh? And I, I said, you are a priceless masterpiece. And they go, what? I said, you are a priceless masterpiece. And you hook an arm around theirs and say, come on down to McDonald's. I'll buy you a cup of coffee and explain it to you. Coffee evangelism is great evangelism, folks. And, uh, well, 
What if you were to do that and explain to them what I've just explained to you? And again, never think small with God. What if we had churches that looked at each individual person as a crisis message sprinkled across the entire United States? We would turn this nation upside down. And we would fulfill the prophecy of a secular prophet, one of our founding fathers, John Adams, who said the founding of the United States was for the purpose of taking the gospel to the world. Hello? Well, I challenge you to start looking at everybody as a priceless masterpiece. And if I can be of any help at all, I'll be out at the book table. Pastor's going to close us out with a few words for you. But you remember now, you are a miracle.